Um, thank you so much for joining. I am Julie Standy. I'm a partner in the Affordable Housing and Real Estate Group at Nixon Peabody, and I'm one of the co-chairs of the Affordable Housing Subcommittee um, for the BBA. Hi, I'm DJ Hebner. I am an associate at Hackett Feinberg, um, and I am the other co-chair of the Affordable Housing Subcommittee. Thank you all for being here. Yes, thank you so much. Um, so this presentation is called Affordable Housing Acronyms. Um, and we're going to, just to kind of give you a short agenda, we're going to go through a quick introduction, cover the basics of low-income housing tax credits and equity, construction of permanent loans, subsidized financing, and then if time allows, um, we are able to answer some questions at the end, or you can always shoot either DJ or I an email if you have questions um, following the event. We did just want to make a quick note that uh, although this presentation does cover a number of items, that there are, you know, certain things that are not being covered that are, you know, extremely important to affordable housing development. And so some of those things are listed here. Um, one that I just wanted to note that kind of lends to the um, the equity slides is just that we are covering low-income housing tax credits, but there are a number of other tax credits that are used in affordable housing developments that we will not be covering. So I just wanted to, to highlight that. And this applies to the handout as well. Yes. So putting together financing for an affordable housing development is extremely complicated and there are a number of different sources and programs. And so DJ and I, you know, on the subcommittee thought that it would be helpful to pull together a list of the number of acronyms used um, in shorthand as you're working on an affordable housing transaction, as we thought that would be helpful, um, particularly for people just getting into the industry. It can be very confusing because these acronyms are used, um, you know, throughout calls and in discussions with clients and other things. And so having this list, um, we thought would be helpful to folks. So as we go through our presentation, um, we will try to highlight some of those uh, acronyms that are on that list um, as a as it pertains to different slides that we're we're going over. So first, just a little bit of background information, just as we dive into this. Um, so the low income housing tax credit uh, was enacted in the Tax Reform Act of eighty six, and the overall idea was just that they wanted to incentivize certain private actors to develop and operate affordable housing by providing a tax credit against income tax liability, um, as they thought that it would attract folks to, um, you know, wanting to, to contribute funds or other sources to affordable housing developments. So residential rent, rental projects are eligible for this tax credit if they provide certain types of affordable housing for at least 30 years. The federal program is administered by the states. So the IRS apportions low-income housing tax credits to the state allocating agencies. And the states then allocate low-income housing tax credits under QAPs, which is one of the, the acronyms, uh, Qualified Allocation Plans. So QAPs are developed by the state allocating agency under certain IRS guidelines. And uh, in Massachusetts, the state allocating agency, formerly known as DHCD, is now the Executive Office of Housing and Livable Communities, another acronym, EOHLC. So developers apply to these allocating agencies for credits. And this is an extremely competitive process in Massachusetts. You know, a number of developers will 
start working on projects and uh, pull together their submission and the allocated agency reviews all these submissions and then makes an announcement of all the projects that will be allocated uh, credits for, for that time period. So state allocating agencies also monitor projects for the 30-year compliance period under Section 42. So these projects submit certain reports and other requirements to the state allocating agencies for them to monitor that they're complying with all of the uh, low-income housing tax credit requirements. So the federal low-income housing tax credits, there, there are two that I'm going to highlight here. So the 9% tax credits, um, this is for new construction and rehabilitation costs. These are allocated by uh, the HCD pursuant to the QAP, and 9%, which this essentially means is 9% of qualified basis times 10 years. These credits are extremely competitive. The other credits are 4% credits, which apply to acquisition costs in any project and projects financed by certain tax-exempt bonds. And 4% means 4% of qualified basis by 10 years. So these credits, um, one thing to know is that they do come with certain tax-exempt bonds and that they, although they are still limited, um, they're a bit less competitive than the 9% tax credits. Um, and the 4% tax credits in Massachusetts they're, I wanted to note that they're allocated by Mass Housing in conjunction with Mass Housing's tax exempt bond financing and by uh, Mass Development in conjunction with tax exempt bonds. Mass Housing and Mass Development are also terms on the um, acronym sheet. Yep. Um, two terms I just wanted to highlight that were on that previous slide and explaining the 9% of 4% tax credits are just is eligible basis and qualified basis. So eligible basis is total development costs minus these certain items that we've had listed here, land acquisition reserves, permanent financing fees, syndication costs, and qualified basis is eligible basis times the applicable fraction. And applicable fraction is the percent of low income units or the square footage of the, the development, whichever is less. So diving into equity. So the basic structure for um, affordable housing projects is that developers will apply for the credits and then they market them to investors or syndicators who pull together a number of investors who can use the credits. Investors make their investment upfront and then annual tax credits offset taxes otherwise owed by the investor each year for that 10 year time period. And the upfront cash investment is a huge part of the project financing. So it's extremely important as the developer pulls together the number of sources that they need uh, to be able to, to build or rehab that development. So the org structure, so tax credit owners or the owners of these affordable housing developments are either limited partnerships or limited liability companies. So LPs and LLCs are two of the other acronyms. And these owners are controlled or managed by either a general partner in the case of a limited partnership or managing members or managers in the case of an LLC. So for practical purposes, an LP or an LLC are essentially the same um, and are both passed through entities for federal tax purposes. Um, and they don't pay taxes or get, get credits, but they pass the tax credits through to their partners or members. So for a LIHTC partnership, uh, the general partner or managing member gets 0.01% uh, interest in the partnership and the LP or investor gets 99.99%. 99 
and the developer um, forms and controls the general partner or managing member entity. So that's how they're able to still, um, you know, control the development of the project. So roles of the parties. So as I mentioned, the the general partner or managing member are usually a subsidiary of the sponsor or development of the project, and they have day-to-day -day management control. They hold the 0.01% interest that I mentioned, but they often get 80 to 90% of net cash flow or sales proceeds in the event that the development is sold. And then limited partners or the investor members are usually a bank or other financial institution, and they invest equity in return for the credits and losses, as we discussed. And they hold the 99.99% interest in the entity, but they only get about 10 to 20% of the cash flow or sales proceeds. Um, this varies a bit depending upon negotiation, but those are um, the majority of deals. And the limited partners or investor members get guarantees to project their projected rate of return, where they'll do, a, you know, many of you have probably seen, if you've worked on these projects, they'll get to review projections of the deal. Um, so they have their projected rate of return of what they'll get on the deal, but you know you can only these are just projections. So they get guarantees to be able to protect their interest, and they're also entitled to reports. So throughout their their time in the deal, um, as a limited partner investor member, the uh, the general partner controlled by the developer will provide certain reports to them, and they also there's a list within the limited partnership agreement or the operating agreement, depending upon which uh, type of entity it is, that will list out major decisions that uh, require limited partner or investor member approval. And then I also just wanted to highlight some of the key equity and tax credit documents. So on the equity side, where the investor member or the limited partner is getting admitted, there's a letter of intent or term sheet that's initially negotiated with the developer that sets forth some general terms of what they um, have agreed upon. And then there's the limited partnership agreement or operating agreement that I just mentioned. And that's a heavily negotiated document by attorneys for, for each side um, that basically covers all, all aspects of what their deal is. And then certain ancillary documents of the guarantee, which I mentioned, um, asset management fee agreement, incentive management fee agreement, where the developer will get a certain fee for um, services that they provide to um, the partnership or, uh, or LLC. And the, the limited partner management member will get certain um, fees for services that they provide. The development agreement, um, which is with the developer, um, as they get a certain fee for, for the role they provide as the developer, and then a purchase option and write a first refusal. And then the federal you, tax credit. Sorry, Julie, would you mind explaining what that write a first refusal is? Because I included that on the handout and um, I did not know exactly what was going on there. So the the details of. So a purchase option and write a first refusal, um, hard to go into too much detail. So it could cover. Sorry a two hour training session of what the purchase option and right of first refusal is. So that's why I didn't want to dive into it too much here. Um, but it's under section 42. Um, the, so it depends, there's a certain nonprofits get certain rights under purchase option and right of first refusal, as well as the, the general partner and limited partner of certain rights. Um, and this basically covers a purchase option of the project or interest in the project and a right of first refusal if they're going to sell either the project or interest in the project to keep it very, very general. Um, there's a lot to, to discuss, so it'd be hard to just kind of give a, a general description. 
That's fine. Um, Sorry to interrupt. No, no, it's fine. Um, federal tax credits, uh, some of those key documents, there's the tax credit regulatory agreement and declaration of restrictive covenants, um, which, you know, would go, which is with the allocating agency. And so that covers, uh, which is often with, um, formerly known as DHCD, and that covers uh, the requirements, certain affordability restrictions and um, reporting requirements. And then the 42M letters, which are the letter from the allocating agency to an owner, evidencing that the project being financed with tax exempt bonds does satisfy the requirements of uh, the QAP in section 42. Okay. Um, and then, so we're going to move on to the second kind of financing used in these, which are construction and permanent loans. Um, but are there any questions immediately? I don't see any in the chat about what Julie was talking about. Anybody have anything they want to ask? Otherwise, feel free to hold it till the end. Okay, great. Um, so the second source of financing, second major source of financing in affordable housing transactions are construction loans and permanent loans. So typically construction loans and permanent loans, the main source of construction and permanent loans are made by a senior lender who's the one who gets paid back first in case anything goes wrong. Um, the senior lender is typically, I have seen a private bank, but can also be a government agency or a subsidized provider. Um, and so the difference between a construction loan and a permanent loan is timing. Um, construction loans come in while the building is being built. Um, and permanent loans um, come in after the building has already been completed and people are living there and paying rents and are typically repaid by the revenue that the building is generating. Um, so as I just said, construction loans are typically coterminous with the construction schedule um, and they are typically drawdown loans. Um, so you will see Affordable housing developers getting different chunks of the loan at different times tied to different um, milestones in the construction process. Um, and these advances can have different requirements like a title rundown or other things that are um, detailed in the construction loan documents. Um, typically they're repaid with interest only, which makes sense because the building isn't generating any revenue yet. Um, and construction lenders, again, generally commercial banks. Um, one of the Schedule of these disbursements, you can find in the one stop, which is one of the terms in the handout. Um, the one stop is always really helpful. It's put together by the developer and is a description of all of the different financing that's going into the project. And then the timeline of how that financing is being lent to the borrower and getting spent by the borrower. Um, and so the sources and uses in the one stop will have a schedule of disbursements and where the disbursements are coming from, um, which of the construction loan sources. Um, and then also, Construction loans typically involve a balloon payment, um, so they mature after construction is over, usually in about two or three years, depending on the construction schedule. It can be extended in some um, certain cases, but to make sure that the balloon payment, the developer will be able to make the balloon payment at the end of construction, it's important to line up all of the permanent loan sources, um, and the one-stop sources and uses will let you check, double check that. Um, so I always found that really helpful when re, when representing either developers or construction lenders or permanent lenders. Um, typical construction loan documents are pretty standard. Um, they're what you see in a real estate deal. So a loan agreement, a note, a mortgage securing the property. Um, typically, so as Julie said, the typically the borrower is the special purpose entity. So the LLC or the LP. And so sometimes you will get a guarantee from the sponsor or the developer um, because they're 
they tend to be the one with more cash than just the special purpose entity. Um, but there are some documents that are also outside of the norm. Um, so they can include pledges of membership interests in the structure that Julie was just discussing, um, pledges of the capital contributions coming in from the investor in order to repay the construction loans, um, and pledges of other tax credits or state LIHTC. Um, so the next section is permanent loans. Permanent loans have a longer term amortization. They come in after construction is done um, and they're repaid with the project revenues over time. Um, permanent loan sources repay construction loan sources. So again, you wanna make sure that funding lines up. Um, typical permanent lenders I have seen are not private banks. Um, they tend to be subsidized sources or government entities like mass housing or MHP and certain of the mass stocks lenders, which we'll talk about later, which means that permanent loan sources have more restrictions. Um, and some of the examples of these restrictions include risk sharing and workforce, which are both terms on the sheet. So risk sharing is a program run through HUD, um, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, a federal program, where HUD takes on some of the risk that the permanent lender will not be repaid. So they ensure the the loan. Um, that has several requirements. Um, and if HUD is involved in your deal, you have a lot more diligence to do. Um, so just keep that in mind. Um, workforce is a mass housing program where they provide permanent loans through workforce sources. Um, and those also have their own diligence requirements. But workforce is tied to AMI, um, area median income, levels of people who are going to live in the development. And we'll discuss that when we talk about the mass docs. So both construction and permanent loans can be financed by tax-exempt bonds, um, which Julie already touched on in connection with the 4% LIHTC. Um, so deals that qualify for tax-exempt bonds also automatically qualify for 4% LIHTC. So typically you see them go together. Um, Tax-exempt bonds are a whole other set of regulations and rules that you have to worry about. And typically deals where you have tax-exempt bonds, you will have separate bond counsel who's representing the issuer of the bonds. Um, the typical issuers of the bonds in Massachusetts are mass housing and mass development. Um, tax-exempt bonds, in case you don't know, are bonds that the bond holder, so the purchaser of the bonds, collects interest, right? And that interest is not, is exempt from federal income taxation. So it's a subsidy from the federal government to local governments um, or whoever is issuing or a, um, nonprofits like affordable housing developers who are the beneficiaries of these tax exempt bonds. And typically in a um, affordable housing development, you'll see it in a conduit structure. So it's a conduit because the issuer, mass housing or mass development, acts as a third party in the triangle between the bond holder, so the bank who's purchasing the bonds, and the nonprofit affordable housing developer who's receiving the proceeds of the loans of the bonds. Um, and so those three different parties interact in order to get the bond proceeds where they need to go. Um, so this can cause what's called a substantial user problem. And this is kind of complicated. Um, this is something, if it comes up in your deal, you'd have a lot of diligence to do in order to figure it out. But I just wanted to flag it for you as a problem. So one of the um, 
requirements of tax-exempt bonds is that the bond holder cannot be a substantial user of the property that is benefited by the tax-exempt bonds proceeds. And so if the bond holder is a bank who's purchasing the bonds and then lending the money to the um, developer as either a permanent or construction loan, but the bond holder is also the the federal LIHTC investor, and so they own equity in the project, they can become a substantial user because they're, they own equity in the borrower. Um, and so if that comes up, it's something you have to work through, just flagging it for you um, to help you connect to the different participants in the program. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up about um, tax exempt bonds is arbitrage. Um, so arbitrage is when a tax exempt bond borrower can borrow the funds at a lower interest rate than if they were to invest the funds elsewhere, right? They could invest the funds and collect a higher interest rate on them because they're borrowing on a tax-exempt basis. And so obviously the federal government wants to protect against this um, when they're issuing tax-exempt bonds. And so there are all sorts of rules about where they can hold the proceeds of the bonds, how much interest the proceeds of the bonds can collect, um, and things like that. And so this comes up in conduit issuances where you have mass housing or mass development issuing the bonds and the affordable housing developer borrowing the proceeds of the bonds directly. But it can also come up when you have other providers um, of loans to the deal who are getting their money to loan to the deal from an issuance of tax exempt bonds. So some of the mass stocks lenders actually get their sources of funds to lend to affordable housing developers from tax exempt bonds issued by the state of Massachusetts. And if that is true, then you are also subject to all of these rules as well. Um, and so you'll have to worry about the substantial user program um, and uh, arbitrage. And so that's also all something that's calculated by um, Bond council typically, but just something to flag is something that may come up. Um, so subsidized financing. We put the second, subsidized financing can make up construction to permanent loans, but typically it makes up soft debt. So it's called soft debt because it's subordinated to the senior construction or permanent loan. Um, and so it's repaid second if anything were to go wrong or third or fourth. Um, and so these soft debt sources, can be construction or permanent loans as well, but they're typically subordinated to the main construction or permanent lender via a master subordination agreement, which is one of the mass talks we'll talk about later. Um, so soft debt is usually subsidized debt. And because it's subsidized by either the state or federal government, it's tied to different restrictions on the use of the property. So it can be tied to affordable house housing restrictions or other use requirements that are typically set by statute. Um, so that's also something to think about while you are constructing these loan documents. Sometimes you want to negotiate away a provision restricting the use of the property, but it's statutory. Um, and so that's uh, difficult to get around. So always make sure where your restriction is where your restriction is coming from. Um, one of the things that's provided by MassDocs um, that I find very helpful is the affordable housing matrix. And so the affordable housing matrix will tell you what units need to be restricted to what income level of residents in order to satisfy all of the requirements of the subsidized debt. Um, and another one of the restrictions that I wanted to point out here is NEPA. So NEPA is a federal law. It's the National Environmental Protection Act. Um, NEPA requires a review of an affordable housing construction if the affordable housing project is using federal money. 
Um, and so federal sources of subsidized debt include home, which comes through the mass docs, but also different um, vouchers like Section 8 vouchers, which we'll talk about later. But NEPA review um, requires that affordable housing developers complete the NEPA review before they make any what are called choice limiting activities. Um, and so that's pretty complicated, again, probably beyond the scope of what we're talking about right now. But I just wanted to flag it as something that can change the timing of the way certain decisions are made throughout um, the financing and can change your structure um, in, in order to comply with NEPA. And typically you will see a NEPA memo as part of the closing. And so if you're reviewing the documents, uh, if you're reviewing the documents for an affordable housing closing, the NEPA memo will let you know that everything was complied with in terms of the NEPA review. Um, and that's typically provided by borrowers council. Yeah, and I just want to flag, it's always helpful to get environment, environmental council involved um, and particularly for newer developers in affordable housing to flag NEPA right away and make sure you get um, you know, someone in your office or outside environmental council involved to be able to do a NEPA review to recommend whether or not um, it applies. Good point. Yeah. Um, and so NEPA is one of the terms on the sheet that so is authority to use grant funds, AUGF. And that's the document that you will receive from either HUD or a state agency um, that says that the affordable housing developer has complied and can go ahead and make choice limiting decisions. Um, so the next section we'll talk about is the mass stock system. I love mass stocks. It's wonderful. Um, if you are from Nolan Sheen Patton, thank you so much for helping develop the mass stock system. Um, it's a really convenient program that amalgamates a lot of the subsidized debt sources, a lot of the subsidized soft debt sources that are subordinated to the construction or permanent senior lender. It is a super convenient program, but make sure that your subsidized sources actually participate in the mass doc system before you plug them in there. Um, typical, that's a common mistake. Um, so each source of the subsidized debt has different restrictions and requirements. Again, that can be set by federal statute or state statute or local requirements. Um, and so the mass doc system is great because it amalgamates all of those requirements for you. You can put in the different sources that you're using into what's called the mass docs interview on the mass docs website. Um, and then it can organize all of the different provisions and the loan documents that you need that get spit out by the MassDocs interview. Um, so this is all on the MassDocs website. This is probably old news to you if you've ever represented MassDocs, but I apologize. But um, it is a really helpful way of amalgamating all of the different restrictions together. Um, so one of the things that comes out of the... Um, Mass stock system is the affordable housing matrix that I was discussing earlier. Um, the affordable housing matrix is based on AMI, which is one of the um, terms used in the in the handout. AMI is area median income. So that's something that's set by a national agency that's evading me right now. I apologize, but it will tell you what is the area median income for the area that you're working in and what percentage of the area median income different um, units of the property need to be restricted to in order to comply with the affordable housing restrictions. So that's where you see 30% of area median income, 50% of area median income, 70% of area median income. And the mass stock system will spit out a whole matrix for you, which is helpful, a chart telling you which units need to comply with which level of area median income for the different sources that you're using. Um, 
So different agencies administer different programs. And so here I have listed on the left-hand side, the agencies that administer the different mass docs programs. Um, city or town here means localities. So local, uh, different local governments can also administer mass housing, or excuse me, mass docs funds that go through the mass doc system. But all of these different programs have different requirements. They all have different legal names. And if you ever are representing mass docs, I would highly recommend that you check out the mass docs website because they have a lot of resources um, on there that'll help you get all these straight, um, which I have always found very helpful when acting as mass docs counsel. And typically, luckily, because they're all amalgamated, they only have one attorney who does all of these, or one law firm with many attorneys probably, who uh, do all of these different things. So some typical documents for mass docs or other subordinated debt, again, the same as the construction to permanent, you have a note, you have a mortgage, you have um, a loan agreement. Um, but the uncommon documents here are the master subordination agreement, which subordinates all of the subsidized soft debt to the construction or permanent um, senior lender. Um, and then also an affordable housing restriction, which details all of the different restrictions on the units and what level of AMI they can be rented out um, to low income residents at. Um, sorry, go to the next slide. So another source of funding that's not a loan, um, so it's not soft debt, but still is a subsidized financing part of the deal are rental subsidies. Um, so rental subsidies, uh, you've probably heard of Section 8, um, that are administered by the federal government, or there's a state level rental subsidy called MRVP. So rental subsidies can either be vouchers that are held by individuals. Um, so the individual can go out to any apartment complex and say, will you accept my voucher? Um, or they're project-based vouchers, PBVs, which is another term on the sheet that are tied to units themselves. Um, and so, rather than having a person go out and look for a unit, it's available for somebody to occupy who is who meets the income requirements. Um, these, either the project-based vouchers or the tenant vouchers are typically administered through a regional nonprofit housing agency. So this can be called an RAA, Regional Administering Agency, or a PHA, um, a profit, nonprofit housing agency. Um, and so that's a third party that will administer the subsidies and typically pay the borrower on behalf of the tenant. Um, so rather than the tenant paying the uh, affordable housing developer and borrower directly, it's paid by this regional administering agency. Um, and so in order to set this up, it requires a lot of diligence, like everything else. Um, and you'll typically see this in the management document. So if you're looking at an affordable housing um, closing agenda or something like that, there are various documents like the tenant selection plan, the affordable affirmative fair housing and marketing plan. Um, and these all set out, um, are affected by which rental subsidies the developer is using in order to make sure that they have enough financing to get the deal done. Um, and so section eight requires an agreement to enter into housing assistant payment contracts as part of the closing diligence. So AHAP, that's one of the um, terms on the form. Um, and a housing assistant payment contract is a contract between the regional administering agency, the RAA, and the owner of a unit occupied by a Section 8 voucher holder. Um, and under that agreement, the RAA 
agrees to make housing assistance payments to the uh, affordable housing developer um, on behalf of the specific tenant. Um, and the amount of rent is determined by the regional administering agency in accordance with the HUD requirements of Section 8. Um, and so these rental payments are part of the rent that is pledged to the permanent lender in order to repay the permanent loan. Um, so if you have rental subsidies administered by HUD, they require a subsidy layering review and a subsidy, which is another term on the sheet, a subsidy layering review, SLR. Um, they're administered by HUD in order to ensure that the public assistance used through the HAP um, and from all other sources going into the document. Um, aren't excessive in terms of the service that the affordable housing developer is providing. But the subsidy layering review is another thing, is another uh, process that HUD administers that can make your diligence more tricky and can affect the um, timing and the way that certain things can go through the deal. So I wanted to flag that as well. Um, so the last thing we want to talk about are, are other sources of soft debt. So aside from the mass stock system. So the first one are sponsor loans. So the sponsor or the developer can help plug a gap in the budget by lending money to the borrower directly. Um, and typically you see this through different structures. There can be um, you know, various seller loans, other sorts of sponsor loans, but the biggest one is the deferred developer fee. So a sponsor is typically paid a developer fee as compensation for their participation in the program. Um, and the developer fee is paid by the special purpose entity by the borrower. Um, but if there's some sort of gap in the financing, the sponsor can defer that fee um, and decide to get paid later. And the deferred developer fee can be secured by a mortgage, doesn't have to be, can be secured by a loan agreement or that, but that's typically the way that sponsors will lend money to borrowers in order to make up the gap. Um, there are also other lenders who provide um, subordinated debt uh, to affordable housing developments aside from the MassDOX system. The one that I've, I see the most is the Federal Home Loan Bank of Boston, the FHLBB. Um, so they have their own set of documents, but there are others as well. Um, and so that will add another loan agreement, another note, another um, set of documents that you have to deal with. All right, and I think we're early actually, quite early, so I apologize. But if anybody has any questions about what we were talking about, um, feel free to ask them now, or um, I don't know, Julie, did I miss anything? Is there anything else you wanted to go over? No, I think we covered everything that we, and it's always hard to gauge exactly how long, particularly if uh, whether or not there'll be questions. Um, but yeah, if anyone has any questions, either feel free to raise them now or, you can shoot DJ or I an email. Yeah, we included our emails on the on the last slide. Okay, great. Seeing no, I don't let me check the, I don't see any questions in the chat. Um, but I'm happy to sit around for a little bit if if anybody, oh, I just got a message from somebody in my firm that the chat is actually disabled. Um, let me see. Trenton, is that something that you can address? Not sure if he's still there. Give me one moment. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, it looks like just the hosts and panelists can access the chat.
Oh, okay. I just saw that. Okay. Oh, okay. Somebody says that the chat is disabled, but the Q&A is open. So if you would like to submit a question, feel free to submit it through the Q&A. Uh, so Carrie asks, will the recording and presentation slides be available? Yes. Um, I believe that Trenton is going to send out he already sent out the handout, but he can send out the slides as well. Um, and the recording will be available on the BPA website. Very welcome. Okay, great. Doesn't seem like there's any questions. Um, Again, we just dumped a ton of information on you. If you have any questions, feel free to email either of us. Uh, thank you all so much for your time. Have a wonderful week. Yes, thanks everyone. And I hope that the uh, the acronym sheet is helpful as you, you start working through affordable housing development deals. It's They're very complicated, but the more you work on them, the more it all kind of comes together. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks everyone. On behalf of the BBA, I would like to thank everyone for coming and attending this webinar and wish everyone a happy afternoon. Bye.